Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, what is the secret to a good trade agreement? Trade creates disruptions in exactly the same way technological change does. We do a lot of things to ensure that the losers from technological change we take care of. We have safety blankets, we have retraining, we have social insurance, and we have rules about what kind of technological change is you know, acceptable, what kind isn't. The rapid rise and fall of the Anbang Empire. Now, we're used to things going quickly in China, but even by Chinese standards, this was remarkably fast growth uh, to go from basically nothing to a company with more than $300 billion of assets uh, in less than 15 years. First, a growing number of companies are cutting ties with the National Rifle Association after the school shooting in Florida. Airlines, including United and Delta, car rental companies like Enterprise and Hertz, and insurance companies are ending the discounts that they offer to the NRA's 5 million members. Activists are encouraging people to boycott Apple, Amazon and Google's YouTube because they carry NRA TV. However, Warren Buffett, the chief executive of Berkshire Hathaway, said that it would be ridiculous for the conglomerate not to do business with gunmakers. Christopher Koskolo, our finance correspondent, joins us on the line from New York. What will the business impact of this attempted boycott be, Christopher? It really depends on how the balance plays out. So the NRA has 5 million members. You know, the U.S. has a population of 300 million. But the U.S. is a very polarised country and U.S. political polarisation has been has been getting worse and worse and now you know companies are being dragged into the fray and this this boycott of the NRA from the corporate side shows that for some of these of America's largest corporations they reckon that on balance they would take a bigger reputational hit from continuing to offer these discounts than from suffering the ire of some conservative activists but of course you know companies have come out on both sides of this and have gotten you know equal or, or amounts of opprobrium so you know FedEx put out a big statement saying that they sort of they opposed assault rifles in civilian hands but yet they were going to continue offering these discounts to the NRA and so the the Parkland High School students called for people to boycott FedEx so and liberal activists went after FedEx and then on the other hand you know uh, gun rights activists and conservatives have uh, urged people to boycott United, Delta, MetLife, these car rental companies, in, you know, Avis, Hertz, Enterprise. So it's hard to tell where the balance will, will fall, but it's sort of part of America's big political polarization more, more than a sort of corporate story in, in and of itself. But corporate America too seems to be becoming more political, not just in terms of, you know, straightforwardly trying to calculate the balance of what appeals more to more consumers. There have been companies that are taking what they regard as uh, you know, moral or principled stands on both sides, haven't there? Yeah, no, I think it's reflective of the problems of the American political system and and of sort of the, in an age of, of social media, where in fact, companies are more reactive or and at least more quickly reactive than, than even the, the political sphere. And so, I mean, I do think most of these are 
are to some extent a, a reputational or sort of a PR issue in terms of, you know, how do they look to their customers? Will they still be appealing to their customers? You see this in reactive issues as well, not just sort of proactive issues. So obviously, you know, there there were a lot of bosses who mistreated women and, and as the Me Too movement came out. But I think, you know, corporations were quicker to fire people against whom accusations came out than even sort of political bodies because they felt that the reputational hit might be might be big. So even in cases where there had been wrongdoing inside the corporations. But in some cases, I think it's really interesting. It's hard to tell the balance, but in some cases, it's it's clear that there's internal pressure as well. So even employees are, are pressuring their bosses to to take a stand and to come out uh, for a specific corporate value. And if that becomes a bigger trend, I think that's even might have a more lasting impression than just sort of a reputational hit. Are we sort of, what's our brand like? What do our customers think? If, if even employees you know, tell their bosses that they have to take a stand on X, Y, and Z, then, you know, corporates may continue playing an even bigger role in politics. Thank you, Christo. Thanks so much. Have you changed the way you shop because of your feelings on gun control? We're interested to know what you think. Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next, with the talk of renegotiating NAFTA and the Brexit negotiations, trade deals have never been more on the agenda. But what's really in a free trade agreement? Samaya Keynes, our economics correspondent, joins me in the studio. So trade negotiations are very much in the air. And, you know, with Brexit and Donald Trump, there's also this big idea that there's a big backlash against globalisation. And and those two things are, are a result of those Recently, I spoke to Danny Roderick, who's the professor of international political economy at Harvard University and and author of a new book, Straight Talk on Trade. He's really interesting as he's, you know, a card carrying economist. He's an academic, but he's also a very outspoken critic of the world trade deals, how they've been negotiated, how economists have sold them. Um, and, And so given all of that backlash, first of all, I asked him how economists should improve the way that they sell trade deals. This dawned on me when I, I there was this a few years back this survey that the uh, that the Chicago Booth School ran among its experts. You know they have these periodic surveys. They have a good, this group of economic experts and they ask them questions periodically about sort of you know uh, what do you think about this or that. And then one of these surveys was about trade, and then you know one question was about. You know the general principle of fair trade, free trade. Do you think free trade is on balance good? Uh, and then, predictably, you know, most everybody said yes. No surprise there. Uh, the second question was, uh, do you think on balance NAFTA is good, not particular trade agreement? And then, pretty much, almost everyone voted the same way, which was sort of you know um, that overwhelming majority said yes. And, and so this is a bit curious because, you know, NAFTA is a particular regulatory arrangement and uh, it is, it's got, I think, 9,000 pages or so. And I'm pretty sure that, that most of these people, economists uh, who are not trade specialists, who said NAFTA is a great thing, what the, the leap of faith that they, they were making was essentially NAFTA is a free trade agreement and therefore it's like free trade. And then since we like free trade, NAFTA is a good thing. And I think everything suggests that that's you know maybe a you know bit too big a, a leap of faith. So in my in my ideal world, I, I think um, you know that economists wouldn't feel the necessity to circle the the wagons whenever there's a trade agreement, and and just hold their nose and say oh you know I really don't like trips, 
And SDS, I'm not so sure about, but boy, do I like free trade agreements. And then, you know, so that we have to say this because otherwise, you know, we will be empowering the barbarians on the other side of the issue, the protectionists, and we better not do that. Um, and I think that's not very helpful. So one of the ways that economists who know slightly more about free trade deals than you know, the general body of economists, one of the ways that they've tried to sell trade deals is to talk about the kind of the number of winners from these deals, uh, the number of extra jobs that might create, the you know the extra uh, opportunities they might might generate, and you know clearly when you're trying to pass a trade deal through Congress, you maybe are not so vocal about the disruption that might arise as you know as a result of these trade deals. What would a more kind of honest sell of NAFTA back in the early nineties look like? The honest sell for a trade agreement, a well-designed trade agreement, would be the one that is actually the oldest defense of free trade is the one that says free trade is just like technological change. You know, that was the argument that was made, you know, back in the mercantilist era, even before David Ricardo, before Adam Smith, the, the earliest defense of free trade was that it's, you know, we don't object to technological change, even though some people might lose their jobs because technological change is something that increases the overall production possibilities. Trade is exactly the same. Uh, it increases production possibilities. And you cannot sweep under the rug the disruptions because without the disruption, you're not getting the gain. So the, 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 the job losses and the disruptions are the flip side of the coin. And I think this is where I think Many economists, often in the public domain, have gotten very, very misleading, uh, is to sort of want to say, you know, trade is going to give us all these gains, but oh, but the un, you know temporary unemployment or the sectoral shocks or some of the income losses of the losers, we don't need to worry about because they're going to be relatively small. It can't have that, you know. You can't have in our world with the kind of sort of models that we work with. You cannot have very large gains overall gains without also having very large uh, distributional impacts. So I think the way to sell this is to say, look, you know, trade creates disruptions in exactly the same way technological change does. We do a lot of things to ensure that the losers from technological change we take care of. We have safety blankets, we have retraining, we have social insurance, and we have rules about what kind of technological changes you know, acceptable what kind isn't. You know, you cannot torture people in lab in the, you know, in, in you know, just to get better medicines. You know, you have your rules about how you, you, you treat your, you know, rats uh, or your lab animals. You know, these all these regulations about how technological progress is, is uh, you know, under what conditions we allow it to take place, either because of its redistributive effects or because of our norms and values about what's okay to do in experiments and in innovation. Uh, it's exactly the same for trade. What we have to do is is not you know be shy uh, about uh, the downsides and and be upfront about those and and be also upfront about what we're doing to to deal with them. I also asked him what problems he has with the Trump administration's trade policy and whether his criticisms of of that were were different. Trump's uh, trade agenda, I think, is explicitly mercantilist. They look at trade essentially as a zero sum thing. Uh, and for them, trade means, you know, just creating markets, uh, you know, outside for U.S. corporations, uh, giving in as little as possible on import liberalization, 
and to the extent possible, you know, do you know ensure that the U.S. does as little as possible, while other countries do the most. So I think you know there's nothing to like about this kind of of mercantilist uh, trade agreement because it's you know it, it's not sustainable. That's not where the gains are going to be, and and uh, it has really nothing to recommend itself, especially since we know that Trump's objective is not really to improve the well-being of of uh, workers uh, in the United States because if it were you know he has a lot of chances to do things domestically uh, with, with his tax policy with his infrastructure policy with his you know policies on on domestic regulations and health insurance that is not just not doing is completely going in the opposite direction so uh, we know that that's not you know his intentions are not to improve the well-being of the average uh, American uh, uh, worker and family, and his and his trade agreements are simply just completely out of the mercantilist playbook. And so there's I find nothing to like about it. Samir, so, no matter what economists say, making and tearing up trade deals is an intensely political process. What's happening in Washington right now? Yeah, so a lot of these decisions are, you know, coming coming to the forefront. We have the NAFTA negotiations that are ongoing, you know, as we speak. Uh, we've got a looming decision on whether the Trump administration is going to put tariffs on steel. There's a looming case with China. And, and all of these, I think, the Trump administration would claim are supposed to help those people who are left behind. Right? They're supposed to recognize that there have been losers and to renegotiate new rules to help those losers as well as having a mercantilist bent and wanting to kind of increase export opportunities and lower the trade deficit. I suppose the thing that Danny Roderick is really worrying about is that if you are too polemical or too simplistic in your narratives when entering into these things, then that means that it's kind of very easy to come up with equally simple messages to try and get you out of them, but often those simple messages won't actually get you out of them. So, you know, there's a big question mark over whether big tariffs on steel will actually help the people who've been left behind. You know, on NAFTA, it's very unclear how new better rules on NAFTA would really make a very big difference to the people who who lost out from that deal. And similarly with the case with China, you know, it's very difficult to see how new big trade barriers, how one could avoid those backfiring on the American consumer. Now, maybe it'll work out, but the point is it's tricky. Thanks, Samaya. Thank you. Finally, rarely in corporate history has a giant come and gone so quickly. Anbang was founded in 2004 as a small Chinese car insurance company. By the start of last year, it ranked among the world's biggest insurers, with some $300 billion of assets, including stakes in hotels and financial firms across America, Europe and Asia. But then, almost as quickly as it rose, it fell. Last week, the Chinese government announced that it had taken over Anbang and would prosecute its founder for economic crimes. Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, is on the line from Shanghai. Simon, what happened? Well, as you said, Helen, uh, this was a company that uh, only came into existence in 2004. Now, we're used to things going quickly in China, but even by Chinese standards, this was remarkably fast growth uh, to go from basically nothing to a company with more than $300 billion of assets uh, in less than 15 years. There was a lot of talk for a couple of years, at least, about the the dangers of the unbung business model. It was relying on very, very uh, short-term insurance products that were really more kind of like investments, high-yield investments, uh, than really insurance. And it was using those to scale up very quickly. It was buying 
hotels, properties, insurance companies around the world. Uh, it was also investing heavily within the Chinese financial system, taking big stakes uh, in some of the leading Chinese banks. Uh, and so it meant that it had a lot of very long-term assets and a lot of very short-term liabilities, uh, which made it a, a very risky enterprise. Uh, and so regulators began to uh, pay a, a lot of scrutiny uh, over the last year, and it culminated, as you said, uh, in, in the big news on Friday with the uh, official arrest of Wu Xiaohui, its founder, uh, and the news that the regulators had appointed a committee uh, to take over Anbang to manage it uh, from here on forward. So this is just good regulation, or is there more than that? Were they lacking the sort of political friends that you maybe need in business in China? Well, there's definitely different elements to the story. So one one part of it is that it is good regulation. Belatedly, it's good regulation. So uh, this was an important preventive step. The, the government has been waging a pretty fierce uh, campaign to deal with lots of risks that have built up in the financial system. Anbang uh, is, is far from being the only company that's been taking advantage of uh, loopholes and loose regulation over the years. Uh, and, and there was a lot of concern that because of the profile uh, of Anbang's liabilities and the fact that they were so, so short-term, uh, that it might well face a cash crunch uh, over the next year or two. Uh, so steps had to be taken to avert uh, bigger problems before they actually manifested. If, if you look at the statement from the regulators, they say that there was concern that Anbang's solvency might be in trouble. So it wasn't yet in trouble, uh, but there was the prospect of that. So, so there is the, the, that element to the story that this was kind of good ahead of the curve regulation. Uh, but then there is the, the second question, which is, you know, what is the political story behind the scenes? Uh, now, being China, things are obviously murky, so we don't know the full story. Um, but, you know, a fair point is that Anbang was allowed to, to take on these big risks uh, initially. Uh, and one of the explanations for that is that it did for a while seem to have very powerful backers. Uh, the founder, Wu Xiaohui, was married to the granddaughter of uh, Deng Xiaoping, China's uh, leader in the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, who has a, you know, an incredibly strong reputation here. And that is something that appears to have given him quite a lot of clout. Uh, there were other princelings, uh, you know, the children of powerful families uh, that were connected to Anbang as well. Uh, so he, you know, the company and Wu Xiaohui had very powerful backers, and that backing seems to have evaporated uh, over the last two years, uh, which is one of the reasons why Anbang found itself in such a vulnerable position. So, Simon, just very briefly, what does this mean for the broader business climate or the broader business story in China? Well, again, you could you could look at it both from the good regulation and the murky political angles. So on the good regulation side of things, you know, the government is a lot more serious uh, about the problems in its financial system, uh, about the, the reckless investments and the excessive debts, both of private companies and, and state-owned companies. Uh, and it's it's taking a much more uh, aggressive line to dealing with those those problems. And so that's potentially in the short term not great for growth, but for the longer-term fundamentals of the economy, that's very good. But then on the political side, there are questions about, you know, Xi Jinping, who's, uh, as we know now, uh, has a, a term which basically has no limit, his power, uh, his clout, and entrepreneurs and business people who have fallen foul of him for whatever reason uh, have a lot of reason to be worried. Uh, and so uh, there's both good and also potentially quite a lot of bad uh, that we can read into this unbound development. Thanks so much, Simon. Thank you. 
That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.